Welcome in to another exciting episode of the Talking Ball Y'all podcast. We're loaded up with four great interviews tonight. Batting leadoff will be Scott Watkins. He's the beat writer for Southern Miss for the Sun-Herald. And the two spot tonight is Steve Robertson coming off the recent book, Dog Pile. We'll talk Mississippi State baseball and also about the book. And the three spot tonight will be Anthony Hobgood. Anthony is a native of Picayune. Um, he w- played baseball and football for the Maroon Tide before he went on to play football at Ole Miss. Now he is the performance manager at Exos. That's where we will camp out primarily to hear his really cool story and what he does on a day-to-day basis. In the cleanup spot, a big hitter, Ian O'Connor, New York Times best-selling author, Ian O'Connor, who has the book Coach K coming out tomorrow. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the interviews. With fall and cooler weather just around the corner, there's no better time to head out to Brothers in Arms. It's Hattiesburg's premier outdoor gun range. It is located at 4657 Highway 49 South. Whether you're a new shooter or an experienced one, all are invited to shoot on the safe and family-oriented range. Go check them out and inquire about their annual memberships hourly rates as well as their training classes they offer. Once again, that's Brothers in Arms Outdoor Range at 4657 Highway 49 South in Hattiesburg. And remember, always keep your sights pointed downrange. We're now happy to be joined by Scott Watkins. He is the beat writer for Southern Miss for the Sun Herald, amongst other hats, I'm sure, down on the coast. Scott, thanks for taking time for the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And I'll say this, as a Southern Miss graduate, man, we appreciate the coverage you've provided in your short time here on the Gulf Coast. I am trying my best. I only hope that it can, I can uh, continue to do so and can get better at my job as I go along. Man, you're doing a good job, and we know that uh, you're spread thin where you are. So um, let's talk <laughs> Southern Miss baseball, Scott, and the weekend that was on the diamond for the Golden Eagles. A 3-0 start can't really get much better uh, than what the Golden Eagles displayed three straight days. No, you can't. Um, as I told somebody, though, it's a lot like – this series was a lot like Alabama warming up with Mercer or something like that. You know, at North Alabama's a fresh to the Division One league. They are 1-38 against non-conference opponents since the beginning of last year, uh, which that's, that's so hard to do in baseball, to win one game in 40 tries. <laughs> Um, but still, uh, an impressive showing for Southern Miss to come out and um, not play down to the competition. We saw that across the college baseball landscape, I think, on opening weekend. And Southern Miss didn't do that. They they played well. They pitched well, which I think is the big thing. I think you knew what you had going in with the lineup. Um, the big thing was what were you going to get out of a pitching staff that you knew you kind of had to reload a little bit. And the, they pitched phenomenally. They pitched better than anybody else in Conference USA pitch. So it was a great start to the season. Yeah, I think you tweeted earlier this evening just one extra base hit given up through the three ball games. Is that correct? That is correct. One double, I think, that came in the first or second game. And we'll start really kind of backwards. We'll start with the Sunday game and the start that they got and literally the start uh, with um, high 90 of velocity and then strikeout after strikeout from Sunday's starter. 
Yes, Hurston Waldrop. He was a guy that um, was brought up several times in preseason by coaches and players. That's somebody who uh, was going to get a chance jumping from the bullpen, not not just a midweek starter, but jumping straight to the weekend. Uh, he, he was coming in with a ton of velocity. That was something that the players were talking about, that there were guys on the team this year that could just throw the ball, you know, you know, break the radar type speeds. And uh, Waldrop was one of those guys, and he found his way onto the weekend rotation. And this is a phenomenal start. This is going to get him another go uh, for sure. And he, you know, did a great job. And I think that, you know, that's something that the entire team can get around, especially when you're striking out. Guys, um, when, you're, when you're a team like Southern Miss, I know this weekend was a little bit of an anomaly as far as the defense goes. Um, but for the most part, this defense is really, really strong. So when you're a pitcher and you're striking out guys, that defense just it becomes that much better on paper because when they don't have to do anything. Is a Hurston Waldrop is that kind of type, that type of guy, um, and so yeah, really, really a great start for him. When you look, Scotland, you you said defense, so we'll stay there at the shortstop position. Dickerson, still a young player, but really showed himself to be such a good defensive shortstop last year, and that looks to only get better from from that spot. Yeah, you know, another year in, um, he's, he's going to get a lot better, especially surrounded by experienced infielders. When you bring every player back in that infield, um, you know, with McGillis as his double play partner, it, it, that only helps. I mean, you build, you're able to build that chemistry with Danny Lynch and then Sargent over there at first base. That only helps you out, and I think that Dustin Dickerson, not only on the defensive side, but he is—he's taking a huge step at the plate this year. And he was another person that that got a lot of um, mentions before the, the season started, as a guy who really stepped it up the plate. Um, no power whatsoever last year, but displayed enough in the fall and in the spring to work his way into the two hole. I mean, you got to replace Reed Trimble there, and Dustin Dickerson was the guy that they wanted there. Trimble, such a tremendous player. We mentioned it's hard not to think what would have been. I mean, but that that's the game we're in, and, and that's what it – you have so much coming back, but then old Trimble uh, had to go. But mercy, all the pieces back to, to lose him. But like you said, trying to replace that spot in the order. Let's talk about the order. Wilkes, a guy with tremendous power, has had trouble putting the ball – and play so to speak but had those hits on Sunday I'm sure the coaching staff and Wilkes um, hope that that's going to be a sign of things that maybe will continue on and what he could add to this lineup yeah absolutely very slow start um, game one you know for three with two strikeouts and then he kind of kind of worked his way into the flow and yeah phenomenal game Sunday this was the one game that I didn't follow because I had the day off but I saw it on Twitter you know one hit shy of a cycle. Just a, a phenomenal game, double, triple, and just needed that home run. And he drew a walk, which for, for Slade Wilkes, this is big. This sure. is big for somebody with this much power and this much, you know, he wants to swing for the fences. This is the guy that wants a home run every at-bat. And to show that patience and get to get on base any way that he can, that's really big out of Slade. So I, I think that if he could build off that third game, then he, he could have a big year. Scott, we're... I'm a Southern Miss graduate, as, as I've told you from, from the get-go, and so we get so familiar with the consistency of this program, how good it's been under Coach Palmer and now under Coach Barry and the way that uh, Coach Barry, that just that consistency. From an outsider's view, from fresh eyes, from your standpoint, how is this 
program viewed and what has been your experience in your short time covering Coach Barry and the program? Uh, well, it's been a very short time. I've I've met Coach Barry once, and that was after the game on Saturday. Um, but I'm impressed. I mean, I'm impressed by what this team has. Is you know, I thought you know, I'm a Troy graduate. You know, the Troy baseball program is not bad. It's not bad at all. A uh, few couple region trips in the last five years, but this team is a different level, and it's that's really exciting for me to know that um, I'll be covering a a nationally good baseball team and one that has a very big following. So that's something that, that I'm really excited about. You mentioned your time there at Troy. Describe how you think this will play out as, as a baseball conference and really as the conference moves. How excited are you um, to be covering Southern Miss, and do you think this move to the Sun Belt is going to be a good move overall? I don't think that there's going to be much drop-off when, when it comes to baseball when you go from Conference USA to the Sun Belt because you miss out on Louisiana Tech, but you're bringing Old Dominion with you. And you're moving into a conference that has Louisiana, who's traditionally pretty good, and Coastal Carolina, who has a national championship in the last 10 years and just phenomenal facilities up there too. So I don't think that you know Southern Miss is going to be hurt at all by this. I think you know it could help in the long run as Conference USA kind of gets away down by uh, some of the programs that it is going to bring in to have to uh, replace some of the teams that they're losing. So this is going to be, it's going to work out well for Southern Miss. They're very excited about that. I can tell you that much. Will Hall, I'll change gears uh, just a bit here. Will Hall and his gang started spring practice. Some uh, question marks, maybe you're looking to, to get answers, some things you'll be writing about uh, here to come for the football side of things for Southern Miss. Yeah, you know, I think the biggest question mark, and this is one that I don't think they really want to talk about that much, um, and they don't want to worry about that much, and that's a quarterback. Uh, it's it's still, to me, it's still a shaky room. I have not seen Zach Wilkie throw yet. He was held out on Saturday, the first day, due to contract contact tracing. I'm sorry. Um, but it's it's still it's a very similar room to last year. And, of course, if you followed last year's team, the quarterback situation was a nightmare. I mean, no team has had to deal with what Southern Miss had to deal with last year. And the room has not changed much. Will Hall wanted to bring in a transfer quarterback, and it didn't happen. He, he wanted to, at some point, switch Trey Lowe to a different position. But I think because he couldn't bring in a transfer quarterback, Trey Lowe is remaining in that position. It's amazing that he's still there because he knows that he's probably not going to start on day one next year. It's Tyke's job to lose, as Will, Will Hall says. But he's still young, uh, super high ceiling. This team, it, they're thin. They're still super thin, I think, at quarterback. And, you know, one 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 roll of the ankle is all it's going to take. Uh, you know, one bad game, something, all it doesn't take much. You know, stepping on a twig and the snowball can get rolling like it did last year. So that's kind of something I'm looking out for is the progression of the quarterbacks and seeing what they can do. They still have the summer semester to bring in somebody else, too. Uh, but other than that, you know, I'm just watching for, you know, how these JUCO transfers and these D1 transfers mix in with the team. Who stands out quickest? You know, Latrell Jones at wide receiver. He's somebody that I feel like can be a huge impact on that offense. If you can put him on the other side from Jason Brownlee, that can be a very, very good combo, very, very fast for Southern Miss. And that just opens up the offense to, you know, a whole nother thing if that can get going but yeah for the most part just how these transfers mix in and how this quarterback room develops 
Yeah, it's interesting you bring up Jones. Is, um, we record out of Picayune, just 25 minutes from Pearl River Community College, and didn't have a ton of catches, but the catches he did have, he showed just tremendous athleticism. I think that's a good pickup uh, by you and by Southern Miss. He could be a lot of fun uh, with the football in his hands. Absolutely. Number one Juco wide receiver in the country. Uh, he's got he's got a very high ceiling, a lot of potential. Uh, it, it, like you said, fantastic, fantastic pickup for Will Hall and staff. Scott, I can't thank you enough, man. Like I said, we appreciate your coverage. We'll have you on from time to time to kind of give us a Southern Miss report if you're up for it. But thanks for your time this evening. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Thank you, Scott. How do you unwind? Whether it's hunting riding horses, or just sitting around a campfire. It's better on land you own. Southern Ag Credit can finance that land. Give our Gulfport office a call at 228-832-5582 or visit us online at southernagcredit.com. We are now pleased to be joined by Steve Robertson. Steve, thanks for taking time for the podcast. Yeah, man, happy to do it. Happy to do it. Always good to talk some baseball. Steve, let's talk about your recent book, uh, Dogpile, and the way that it's being received and the journey it was to to get this thing printed and in people's hands. Yes, yeah, pretty wild. Yeah, I could probably write a book about the book. You know, I mean, it's been. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, obviously going to Omaha is such a special experience. And then, you know, on top of all that is seeing you know, Mississippi State win a national championship. And, you know, I, I had decided midway through the year, I, you know, we won a national championship. I'm writing this book. I mean, this will be a keepsake for all time. And so, so as we got a little bit closer, you know, people started getting excited about it. You know, people in, in my business side of things. And, and so as soon as the game was final, I tweeted out that the writing process would begin immediately. And. We had one planning meeting on, the, I guess, the day after I got back from Omaha, maybe that Monday after I got back from Omaha, and then that was it. And I wrote basically 18 hours a day for six days a week for six weeks, and they told me that if we got it delivered by September the 15th, they had a chance to get it out before Christmas, and that was the plan all along. And usually it takes about six to eight weeks to get a book printed, and uh, this one took about five months. And I delivered it August 26th, and it didn't get get here until February. And that was the hard part, too. It's like, you know, because, like, you're expecting it to have it to give to your friends and family. And you know, you have so many people that, you know, pre-ordered the book, hoping to have it under the Christmas tree. And, you know, you hate to be the Grinch, but there was a national paper shortage. And, you know, that slowed everything down. But, you know, the book gets here in time for opening day. And, you know, we've had some challenges shipping-wise with all that because, quite simply, they – they just hadn't seen this volume in sales in such a short time. And we've already sold over 5,000 books in two weeks. And so um, the second printing's already been ordered, and it'll be here sometime in April. And there's a really good chance that we run out of books sometime in March. But uh, hopefully bookstores will still have them for a little while, but they won't be gone for long. We'll be right back with them. And uh, it's doing great. You know, people are doing really well with it. And, you know, in its first week in limited release, it debuted at number five on the Mississippi bestsellers list. And then... You know, last week it was in full release and in stores all over, and, and it's now the number one book in the state of Mississippi. So awesome, man. Congratulations on that. That's just, that's really cool stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's well, here's the thing, too. It's like, I mean, you know, you spend, 
you know, you don't work any less hard on any of these books. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you work hard on all of them and everything you do. And, you know, you just hope people appreciate it. But this is one that we knew was going to be special to people. And, you know, I mean, there's no end to, you know, the requests and that sort of stuff. You know, people want you to come and sign books. And I don't don't keep my own schedule when there's a book tour. And I'm kind of glad that I don't because I would tell everybody, yes, just work my death. But, uh, you know, you, you just kind of know when you're working on something that's special, and it's all special to you. But, you know, it's one thing to write about the history of Mississippi State, as I did in Stark Villains and Alpha Dogs. But, you know, this is one that people got to live out in real time, and so I think it's something that they'll cherish forever. Steve, you cover the program so closely, and, and I'll say particularly the baseball program. So were there things that you, as you went back and, and wrote this bill, that, that you learned that, hey, you know, I didn't know at this time, some stuff that you kind of un- uncovered through the process that maybe surprised you about that team? Yeah, well, you know, here's the thing I would say about that is, you know, I mean, I, I went to every baseball game last year except for four. We, we missed the series in Arlington to open the season because we couldn't get there due to weather. And then I missed the college Charleston game out there the week of the South Carolina trip. And I made everything else, you know, so I was pretty close, I guess, to all of it. But, uh, you know, one of the fun things is talking to the coaches, you know, after the fact. You know, when did you know this and when did you feel this? And that stuff's rather interesting. But also, too, I mean, you know, sitting down across the table one-on-one with Ron Polk and, you know, having you know, having some of his time and him explaining how he almost didn't take the job at Mississippi State. I mean, I, you know, where would we be today without Ron Polk? What would our ballpark look like? What would our program look like? I mean, it's just, it's remarkable to hear him talk about that, and, you know, how he nearly stayed at the University of Miami. And, you know, we really boiled down to a couple of, you know, last minute decisions by a couple of people. And then ultimately he comes here and transforms not just our program, and not just SEC baseball, but really college baseball as a whole. Yeah, it's funny you bring up Ron Polk, which uh, I guess my Facebook memory today, uh, I tweeted Facebook out um, listening to him and Jim Ellis. I guess he was helping on the color commentary call a year ago at this time at that Arlington series. And boy, you you pair him with Jim Ellis talking baseball. That was a, a fine couple days of commentary that Ron Polk lended himself to to begin that year last year well the thing I, I don't even think you need a ball game you know what i mean <laughs> you just get two together and let them talk and you know they've seen so much between them and been so close over the years and that was one of the things that ron talked about and that's chapter two of the book you know building the bulldog brand and he talked about how important it was to build the bulldog sport the bulldog radio network the baseball radio network and and how nobody in the state really had that and so you know, if you were a young person or even, you know, just a you know, middle-aged person that wanted to listen to college baseball in the state of Mississippi in the 70s and 80s, well, you listen to Mississippi State, you know, because we had the most extensive radio coverage in the state of Mississippi. And that is very significant because, you know, there's generations of fans and players you know, that grew up hearing Jim Ellis call Mississippi State ball. And, you know, unless you lived in the immediate area of, you know, of Ole Miss or, or Southern Miss, you didn't hear them on the radio, but you heard Mississippi State everywhere. And so that's one of the things I think it's important, too, just, you know, writing the book is you can see how innovative and ahead of the curve Mississippi State has been when it's come to baseball. And, I, and you you know, go back, you know, years, Mississippi State, one of the first programs in the SEC to have lights for their stadium and, and really the first college program in the SEC 
to make that commitment. LSU was the first, but they kind of got it by default because they shared a stadium with a minor league affiliate. And then, you know, Mississippi State hiring Ron Polk to be the first ever full-time baseball coach in a Southeastern Conference. And so, you know, Mississippi State was paying, you know, making investments in college baseball long before the rest of the conference was. And it's so good to finally see the Diamond Dogs get the ultimate payout. And when you talk about the payoff, that that ballpark now, by all accounts, a cathedral, just the way that you can recruit from coast to coast to go get basically any player, you know, you may be interested. How how cool is that, Steve? And then that comes before the national championship. That's not just because of the national championship. Of course, that's been building. But as a fan of the program, how cool is that? How cool is that to see? Well, it's incredible, and you know, and that's the thing. I mean, even you know, even as a young person, I mean, you you show up at Duty Noble Field you know, as a kid in the you know late seventies and the early eighties, and you felt like you were reconnecting with the mothership. I mean, it's like you know, you you live in different cities and different parts around the, the South, and, and there's mixed fan bases. But when you come up here, it's like, hey, we're all wearing the same the same colors. We're all wearing them over S, and you know, it just reminded you that you're part of something bigger than yourself, and. You know, we kind of let Duty Noble Field get a little bit antiquated at times. And, you know, we had to make a major commitment because while we loved the place and its charm was unique from a facility standpoint, we had kind of fallen behind some of the elite schools in the league. And and now we have the greatest college baseball facility in the country. And, and there are a lot of people out there that want to argue with you on Twitter. And, and usually the only baseball stadium they've ever been into is theirs they've never been out and seen other places well i've traveled this conference in this country extensively and i can tell you unequivocally mississippi state's duty noble field is the premier college baseball facility in the country steve let's flip forward and look at uh this past weekend this 2022 version if you will of the bulldogs and and what did you see that you like from the bulldogs this past weekend and then some things that uh the bulldogs need to clean up well, we'll start with the negatives. Um, you know, I didn't think we, we, we swung the bats well at all on Friday. And I don't know if that's, you know, the moment may be a little bit too big for some of the newer players. And you've got some guys who were, you know, role players last year that are kind of pushed into a leadership role. And that takes some adjustment. I mean, people, you know, people think a guy like Luke Hancock ought to just be able to pick up where he left off last year. Well, you know, last year, you know, he had guys like, table setters like Rowdy Jordan and Tanner Allen in front of him, you know, and so he didn't have that now. And so, you know, there are guys that are having to kind of get used to you know, defining themselves on a new team. Um, yeah, I thought we hit the ball well on Sunday. And I thought, you know, we, we chased both starters on Saturday and Sunday because they're high velo guys. And that's what we see all the time. West Coast pitching a lot of times kind of specializes young guys with novelty pitches and change in speeds and that sort of stuff. It's a, you know, we play in the same league in many respects, but it's a different brand of baseball out there. Not to say one's better or worse, you know, because we've had some great success against West Coast teams the last few years. But, you know, in the SEC, you get used to power pitching. So you run across somebody that maybe doesn't throw real hard, but they throw, you know, four or five pitches to both sides of the plate. It makes life a little difficult. So I didn't think we handled that exceptionally well. Other than some bunt defensive issues, I thought we played pretty well. But you know, we had a couple of bunts there. We didn't we didn't handle really well, and that that kind of allowed Saturday's game to, to kind of snowball a little bit. But yeah, I think starting pitching was a real strong suit. Obviously, Landon Sims going seven complete, striking out thirteen, not walking any, uh, allowing five hits and just a one run, and that was a fastball. But he, he left up, and the guy just jumped on it. You tip your cap, and 
I thought Cade Smith was outstanding, and and you know, watching him pitch really gives me, you know, a lot of you know, a lot of confidence, I guess, moving forward. And I didn't think Casey Hunt pitched bad either. I thought he had some he had some big moments, but you know, he's settling into a starting role for the first time, so you expect there to be you know, a little bit of a learning curve. And I thought you know the bullpen was kind of a mixed bag. You know, I thought that uh, you know Preston Johnson did some good things, walked a couple of guys he probably shouldn't. Um, you know, I thought Parker Stinnett at times was really good. He's got to get a little more consistent with his command. And, you know, I've talked about this on my own show. I, you know, kind of lost in the, you know, the disappointment of a Friday is how well Stone Simmons pitched. I mean, coming in in the ninth inning and striking out the side, uh, you know, that's encouraging. So, you know, Scott Fox, all those guys have to figure out who they can trust and who fits where. And I'm not the least bit concerned. Would I have liked to have won the series? Absolutely. Would I have loved to have swept it? You better believe it. I didn't expect a sweep. I did expect us to win. Uh, but sometimes, you know, you learn a lot losing. I think getting punched in the mouth sometimes reminds you that, you know, yeah, you've already had your parade and that year is over. And now it's time you know, to kind of get ready for, uh, you know, for another season. And we've got good leadership on this team. And I, I expect State to put together a really good month of February uh, when it comes to the baseball diamond. Steve, is it humorous to you as it, as it is me, even if it's your own f- fan base, especially in baseball, which is, is a true marathon of a season, the overreaction that fan bases can have based on an opening series or even an opening ball game? Well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing, too. I mean, you know, it's like, you know, last year, you know, after we all played in Arlington, you know, I had some people ask me on Twitter, and it, a lot of them were all Miss people trying to it's trying to bait me into a corner and they said who's the most impressive team you saw this weekend i said arkansas and they thought i was trolling them but i was telling the truth you know and it's like you look at that arkansas and, and you feel like hey this is a complete team it has a real spree decor they're old they're well coached and you feel really good about that program and then ultimately they ended up being the number one seed in the tournament that's about the only time you can take an opening weekend and take a snapshot and be accurate more times than not I mean, you know, Vanderbilt loses their series this weekend. Florida loses their series. Nobody should panic or or overreact on the positive side after one weekend. I mean, it's just, you know, it, you look last year, I mean, State loses to Missouri, the worst team in the Southeastern Conference, and wins a national championship. I mean, you know, State you know, has a, a couple bad days in Hoover, and they win a national championship. I mean, nobody is ever as good as their highest moment or as bad as their worst moment. And, and certainly not this early in the year. People forget this time last year, you know, the first month of the season, we were worried if we were going to score runs. I mean, even when we played, you know, Louisiana Lafayette midweek, we beat them 4 nothing. We had four hits in the game. You know, it's like, you know, where was the offense going to come? But you want to be playing your best baseball at the end of the year. And Chris Ramonis has shown in his time here that his teams get, get better. And he always seems to make the move. And we talked about this uh, today with some friends of mine. Yeah, you go back to 2018, and you make the move to move Justin Foskey from third to second. What does that do? It's settled. It's settled your infield. All of a sudden, everybody gets better, and ultimately, you put Marshall Gilbert at third. You know, the next year, you know, you have to move some guys around uh, to kind of figure some things out. You know, where the guys spit on the weekend? Who's going to start? Who doesn't? Well, we had the short, the strike shortened season, but I mean, you know, in 2020, but you know. Lamonis is a guy that's not scared to make the in-season adjustment. You know, and I, I go back to last year. One of the moves that he made, really, I think probably won the national championship for Mississippi State, and a casual fan may have forgotten about it. But you know, for a while there, you know, we had Tanner Leggett playing third, and we had you know uh, Lane Forsythe at short. We had Cam, uh, you know, playing at DH. 
when you insert Cam back into the you know the third base position, and he holds it down defensively, which opens up the DH spot for Kellen Clark. You know, and then next thing you know, where would State be in the postseason without Kellen Clark? You know, it's incredible to think about how you make that one move and it allows the other pieces to fall into place. And if there needs to be some adjustments made this year, then they will be. And the bottom line is that Chris Lamonis is a great manager. Uh, he is the only manager in this in this program's history to win an national championship and has gotten close to doing it a couple of other times too, you know. So I, I don't I don't doubt Chris at all. I know he'll always make the right moves and uh, I think that he's a guy too that knows his team really well and and uh, you know they'll develop an identity and we'll, and we'll get ready to to play in a regional and you know, possibly get back to Omaha again this, this year. This team is capable of getting back there. Can they repeat? Yeah, am I expecting it? No, but you never know what the matchups are going to look like by the time that we get into uh, to June. Yeah, and that's what makes it fun to follow. Steve, I can't thank you enough, man. You're always so good to us here on the program. Thank you, Steve. Yeah, man, glad to do it. And you guys uh, take care. And, of course, uh, you know, we've got a lot of baseball left to be played. And we're going to win a lot of baseball games this year. I agree. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate you. Johnson Farms and Meat Market. Where can you find a full-service butcher shop that carries only the finest beef? From Mississippi farm-raised corn-fed cattle? Why, that would be Johnson Farms and Meat Market in Picayune. Shop at johnsonfarms.com or stop in at the corner of Highway 11 and North Hall in Picayune. Johnson Farms and Meat Market, where quality beef begins. We are now so excited to be joined by Anthony Hobgood. Conducting this interview will be me and Ricky Whitaker. Those that have listened to the Picune podcast are familiar with uh, Ricky Whitaker. Or on that podcast, we refer to him as Slick. So welcome in, guys. Thanks for taking time for the podcast. Thank you, man. I'm excited to be here with you guys. Yes, it's awesome, Blake. Thanks. And just to, um, for upfrontness here, let's get this out the way. Ricky and Anthony are cousins here from, of course, the Picayune area. Anthony's a former Picayune Maroon Tide football and baseball player and a former Ole Miss Rebel on the gridiron. And so, Anthony, let's start there, man. Let's go back to some Picayune roots and what your playing days were like when you were in the maroon and white. Yeah, so, I, uh, you know, baseball was my favorite sport growing up, but because I was a big, big kid, Everybody always encouraged me to play football. And I remember in eighth grade, all my friends were playing football. I wasn't. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to give this a shot. So I started playing football in the eighth grade. Uh, coach Wise was my coach. And that was that was essentially my, my start to play football. And then, man, starting in ninth grade, I played on the ninth grade football team. Uh, coach Edwards, Coach Breland, they were coaching us in ninth grade. And then, yeah, I went on and played through high school at Picayune. Uh, coach Lee, Coach Kirkle was my coach in baseball. Um, that was it was unbelievable years, man. The years the, the years I had, you know, playing baseball under Coach Kirkland, um, the way that he ran that 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 program was just was phenomenal. I mean, there's still things to this day that uh, that have influenced me as a coach, and even in my job that I that I would say was can go all the way back to Coach Lee and Coach Kirkland. Hey, Coach Breland. 
So there's a lot of Coach Brilliant-isms that I probably pull out on players. <laughs> I'm sure they appreciate uh, those, too. You And so our listeners that are familiar with me, hardly do I ever call anybody by their proper name. So it'll be slick, and then I'll refer to you as hobby through most of this just because uh, that's going to be my comfort level. Slick, I'll ask you, you are a few, few years ahead of of hobby and and watching what he's described there just so our listeners that aren't from this area hobbies build and his makeup as an athlete um really kind of ahead of schedule for for all of his career just for our listeners to kind of paint the picture of what kind of athlete you saw in anthony walk through those uh high school years well clay i mean you know me being related to him and being a little older than him you know watching him grow up you know not just playing you know dixie youth baseball but following his high school career and you know as you get to be an old guy like me and like you i guess now to an extent we we tend to sit around and reminisce about you know who's some of the greatest athletes that came through picayune and i tell you you'd be really really hard pressed to leave anthony off of that that list um, and I tell you, Anthony, what, what always I, I go back to in my memory is St. Stanislaus. Um, you were a sophomore. <laughs> we were at St. Stanislaus, and, and you know where I'm going with this. There was a kid by the name of Stephen Peterman that played uh, tight end and, and defensive end, and you did as well. And, and I'm not going to get on here and say that when Anthony held his own, you, you did a lot more than that against that kid who went on and played guard at LSU uh, and also went on and had a pretty good career uh, with the Lions. So I think that will kind of paint that picture. and. Anthony, do you, do you have the, the record still for the longest punt? I know you punted as well. You know, I don't know. I did punt. You know, and <laughs> what's funny is uh, one day the punters were out there punting, and I grabbed the ball and I started showing them, like, man, this is how you punt. And, and when, as soon as I kicked it, Coach Lee was like, hey, do that again. And I did it again. He's like, all right, you're punting. You're punting. <laughs> so I kind of I – didn't, I didn't – I just got told that I was punting. But, but yeah, I think I – man, I think I, I kicked a 63-yarder. That, that was in the air, you know, and I don't know if that was, I don't know if it, somebody's probably beat that by now, but um, I think I did that one time. It was probably by accident. You know, you just, <laughs> yeah, just, it would be, it'd be hard to find someone who, who's uh, outdone that. I can tell you that. Yeah. And, you know, just when I think about Anthony, I mean, you're, for your size, Anthony, what did you weigh in high school and what was your 40 time? Oh, man, I have no idea what my 40 time was. I know going into high school, um, you know, I was, I was an early bloomer, man. So I didn't really grow. Um, I didn't really grow a lot after my senior year of high school. And here's one thing I've noticed is a lot of the elite, elite level players that I, that I trained, they were late bloomers. They were not just monstrous individuals. A lot of them, some of them were, but there's a lot of guys who were, who were small going through high school and, and then just exploded when they got into college and they were late bloomers physically. I was an early bloomer. And so I remember coming into high school, I was probably, I don't know, as a freshman, 215, 220. And, you know, it was me and Lance Spears and then uh, Terrence Stuckey, you know, um, Dominique Quinn, not Dominique Quinn, um, shoot, what's his name? Quinn. Doddell. Yeah, Dominique Doddell was there. I remember right. Dominique Doddell. And so we were, we were like, man, we – we were just, we were strong. Like, and I remember going in, I remember being in eighth grade, going through physicals, and me and Lance Spears walked over to the bench in the weight room, and we started benching 225, like, repping it out. And Coach Brillen was like, boys, come here. And we walked over there, he's like, do you know what you just did? And we're looking at each other like, no, sir. Because apparently that, you know, that was uncommon for an, an eighth graders to rep 225. And, 
he was he was all over about it. But yeah, we were both we were both pretty strong at a young age, um, and you know, which is which is great when you're when you're a freshman and young in high school. But you know, I was you know I was a lot stronger then than I even am now. So if that puts it in perspective for you. Hobby, yeah, I want I'll, pretty impressive. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Hobby, I want you to tell our listeners what what your current role is, and then we'll kind of get more into the organization you're with. But I want to tell the listeners what you're doing now, and then we'll get like into your recruiting and some camp visits. But I kind of want to lay the groundwork now of what you're currently doing. Yeah, so currently I'm a I'm a strength and conditioning coach for a private company. And my current title is performance manager. And so we have a we have a training we have a facility over in Gulf Breeze, Florida, just south of uh, Pensacola, right by Pensacola Beach, um, at the Andrews Institute. And the company I work for is called Exos. And so I'm the performance manager of this facility. And so if you think about our location, we have uh, we have physical therapists on staff, a dietitian on staff, massage therapists, and performance coaches like a strength and conditioning coaches on staff. And so when athletes come here to work with us, we basically um, integrate physical therapy, nutrition, performance training, all into a training training experience, into an integrated system. And so um, I manage the facility. I've been here for 15 years. All right. So, this is, so you're, let's, yep. let's go back to the high school days, and, and you'll tell me exactly when and where, because I know it's probably etched in your memory, but I know a knee injury. I want to say over an L- at an LSU camp, but I kind of want to yeah. tie those two together and what you're doing okay. now, and if you could have had maybe some of this back then or, or how those kind of play together in, in the story that God's given you. Yeah, so, you know, in high school, I, I, uh, I, got, I started getting recruited, uh, for some colleges and, and, you know, I don't know how serious the recruiting was, but I was, I mean, I remember I had a few coaches from different schools come pull me out of class and talk to me. And, and, uh, and so I was getting recruited by Southern Miss, um, LSU, Ole Miss. Um, and, and then also I got recruited by, uh, Pearl River. And then, um, there's another couple schools up in Jackson. Um, I, can't, I think Bellhaven may have recruited me. Is that right? Is that Bellhaven? Yeah, that's probably right. Yep. And so anyway, I was, re- I was recruited by a lot of those schools and, and I'd never, I wasn't even thinking about going to college quite honestly, but when I went on a recruiting visit to Southern Miss and I saw Saturday at the rock for the first time in my life, I was like, man, I want, I want to be a part of this. And so I really started setting my eyes on, you know, trying to go to college and maybe get a scholarship and, you know, playing, maybe playing football in college. And, uh, and so I went to, um, I went to an LSU camp my junior at the right like two weeks before my senior year of high school i was getting geared up for my senior year man i was in the i was literally in the best shape of my life uh and i go to this camp and we were we were playing this this game on the indoor practice facility called tiger ball it's like ultimate frisbee with the football and nick saban is there right so you got the whole you got all of their staff uh derek dooley was there and I remember I was running down the field and I made like a hard cut to kind of go around somebody. When I did that, my foot stuck into the old AstroTurf mm-hmm. and my knee buckled. And it, I just felt this intense pain. And I went off to the side uh, and sat down. Their medical staff came over and was looking at me. And um, Nick Saban had come over there, man. And I remember him like asking me how I was doing. I told him I think I'm be fine. And what's interesting is right before that happened, one of the recruiting coordinators had come to me and had started talking to me about possibly coming there. How serious was he? I don't know. But 
he was he was he was talking to me, and I was I was getting pretty excited about the possibility of going to LSU. And uh, little did I know, I had uh, I had tore my ACL and didn't know at the time. And so I ended up getting evaluated, found out my ACL was torn, and I missed my whole senior year of high school football. And so, as you can imagine, any recruiting that was taking place pretty much like came to a standstill. And um, and so what happened was. Um, I was still keeping in touch with um, old Mrs. Coach who recruited me. Uh, was still keeping in touch with me, and I remember him calling me. And this is, his name is Ron Middleton. He's the coach in the NFL now. And by the way, to this day, is one of my all-time favorite coaches that probably influenced me more than anybody. But uh, Ron Middleton called me and said, "Hey, hey, hey Hopgood," he said, "Look, um, we're not going to give you a scholarship, but if you could find a way to, if you could find a way to walk on, you could earn one." And we would love to have you up here. I was like, man, okay, well, that wasn't really going to work. And so I went ahead and signed a scholarship with Pearl River. And um, so I signed a scholarship with Pearl River. And that was like my – I initially was like, I guess I'm going to go to Pearl River and play football there. And to keep a long story not so long, um, I had applied for some academic scholarships. Do you remember Miss Tanya Ray who worked in the Career Development Center? Sure, absolutely. Listen. Listen, dude, yeah. I can I can tell you right now, Miss Tanya Ray in the Career Development Center is a pivotal reason that I'm even where I'm at today. Hmm. She stayed on me about applying for scholarships. And if she wouldn't have done that, I would have never done I would have never applied them. Like she literally did everything for me until all I had to do was like come sign my name. Wow. That's okay. Awesome. And she she really pushed me to to apply for these things. Well, um, so long story short, man, I got a scholarship to Ole Miss called the Lucky Day Scholarship, and it was a it was an academic scholarship that essentially paid for almost everything. That's incredible. And if it, if it wouldn't been for Miss Ray, that would that wouldn't have happened. And so I don't know if I've ever had a chance to like tell her that, but that's what happened. And so here's what so I ended up going to Ole Miss. And I called coach and said, hey, coach, um, I got an academic scholarship, and I'm coming. He said, awesome. And so I show up to Ole Miss um, on an academic scholarship and um, and essentially was a, a preferred or an invited walk-on to the football team. And here's what I discovered, okay? So I had went on a recruiting visit to Ole Miss. So I knew Coach Cutcliffe. I knew some of the position coaches, and I knew my coach, okay, uh, Ron Middleton. And I was, you know, I'm going to invite, I'm, I'm, you know, they asked me to come, right? And so I know these guys and they invite me to show up. And here's what I discovered, man. I realized very quickly that and the difference between an invited walk-on and someone who just randomly walked off the street onto the football team was absolutely zero. It was no different. Okay. Like you, you, you got stuck in a shed, man, in terms of like, Everybody else is going to dinner to eat a feast, and you're like, you're not allowed to go. You finish a workout, and everybody else gets like a post-workout shake. You don't get one. And so I literally looked at practice as every day I went to practice was like the Super Bowl for me. And I knew I got to, like, earn my spot. And so, uh, you know, I can stop there, but I had to really, like, crawl out of the mud to get to, to accomplish what I needed to accomplish at Ole Miss. And... Um, and my first year on, on when I was on the scout team, I did that. Hobby, it's interesting in your story. You 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 mentioned playing little league as one of the bigger kids, right? And so sports, I'm imagining, yep. came pretty easy 
uh, to you and now you describe uh, uh, had to be a struggle from what you're describing at old old miss how how do those two feelings uh, help you in the athletes that you train today and, and how does that kind of help you to relate to both sides of the spectrum yeah I mean I think the biggest thing one of the biggest things I learned you know playing sports and then you know especially in college was like how I feel doesn't matter only thing that matters is what you do and so when I get up on, when it's when it's in the middle of two days like listen man, I'd look at the inter- itinerary in college and and we would have we would have like 21 days straight starting in two days we'd have 21 days straight of full pass practice okay and there were days I'd get up, man, in the dorm, and I couldn't even pick my legs up because I would be so exhausted. And I would probably get, I mean, in practice, I was probably getting seventy snaps as a as a as a as a fullback. I was I went as a tight end, but got converted to a fullback. And so, as a fullback, every time that you make a block, you're hitting a linebacker from a ten yard head start. And this is back when we ran an I formation, right? And I was I was blocking for a running back. And so you were literally like a battering ram 70 times a day, okay, hitting that much. And so there's days I'd wake up thinking to myself, like, there's no way that I could, I could go through practice today. But I had two of them. <laughs> and you learn, you learn that, like, okay, how I feel today means nothing. The coaches don't care. Nobody cares. And so it's like I got to go regardless if I want to or not. And, and so that was a – Man, and I realized I remember driving to practice. Listen, I remember going to practice and seeing the uh, the landscaping crew at Old Miss like cutting grass and like doing flower beds and looking at them thinking that they had it made. <laughs> I remember <laughs> like, dude, you got it made right now. You're riding a lawnmower and you're not doing what I'm about to go do. Um, but dude, that was that was. I mean, just the overcoming adversity um, on a daily basis, being you know. Being somebody who, like, nothing's given to you. You have to earn every single thing that you get. I mean, that that attitude is something that I try to, like, impose that even onto the players I have now. Because the players I have now, man, are the, they're the most highly, you know, ranked players in the country. And they have been since high school, most of them. You know, some of these kids, you know, Jadavion Clowney, who we trained a few years ago, he was the number one pick in the draft. And he was like the number one player in, in the nation from like eighth grade on, hmm. you know. And so here's a guy who has been rated as the number one guy since he was in the eighth grade. And I'm having to lean on him saying, hey, like, it, it doesn't matter what you did yesterday. Like, that's, it's what matters what you're going to do next. You know, like, you can't, you can't rest on the successes of the past man you got to do it again like that's it's just the reality of it and you got to see it you see it like you take nick saban for example dude who has a statue okay Mm -hmm. outside his building he is two losing seasons and a scandal away from them like burning his statue on a on a bonfire Mm -hmm. that's right (laughs) you see what i'm saying yeah and so it's like it doesn't matter like which the past is great but it's it's all about what do you do next and so that's something that I try to, you know, I try to even instill in these guys. It's like, look, like the NFL, when you go to the NFL, it's all about can you produce and can you produce now? And so whether you were the Heisman Trophy winner or not, it does not matter to anyone. 
How being that answer, you mentioned uh, Coach Cutcliffe and then a changing of the guard. I think while you were there, Coach O uh, takes over yeah. that program. Uh, the difference between the two styles and the two staffs and, and what it was like to, to know both. And it was very, very different. Uh, coach Cutcliffe was a phenomenal coach. And listen, I actually got to take a coaching class from him oh, wow. as an elective. And I wish I would have kept my notebook because it was just dripping with wisdom, man. Uh, but Coach Cutcliffe, phenomenal coach. Um, we had one, we had one bad season the year after Eli left, and then they they fired him and pretty much the whole staff after one season. Wow. And then when Coach when Ed Orgeron came in, um, he was he he initially coached the team the way he coached the D line. I mean, he would grab our, I mean, he was, he was just full of energy. Everything you see, you know, see how he is as far as like being loud and being a motivator. Uh, it'd be, it'd be 530 in the morning and he's, you'd hear him coming down the hallway, you know, starting meetings. And so, you know, he was very intense, very passionate, um, motivator, uh, very different personality than Coach Cutcliffe. And the tough thing was when he came in, the level of, the intensity behind what he did with our team. Like if I were to lay out like our schedule for workouts and how much we ran and how much we met and how much we practiced, it was pretty much, he doubled everything. Like he took what was already a very, very hard off season and, and pretty much doubled the workload on our team. And uh, it was, it was pretty miserable. It's interesting, you know, and I'll let Slick add to this, you know, hearing through Ricky Glenn and through Slick, like what you were walking through. And then a book came out a few years later, Meat Market on like Coach O and that staff, the shotgunning of like Red Bulls. I think he had them drinking yeah. like six packs of Red Bulls a day. And it was like so surreal. The account in the book was just so close to what you were kind of relaying to Ricky Glenn. It was almost unreal to, to piece the two together there. Yeah. And listen, I love, I love Coach O. You know, I, um, I, I really do. Like as a person, love him to death, man. But w listen, when I tell you, he brought the pain on our team. He brought the pain. Like, here, here's an example. In, in, the, in February, there's something that you do every year. They call it some call it mat drill, some call it county fair. And imagine you wake up as a team and you have a team, a, like a team workout at like 6 a.m. and it's like an hour to an hour and a half of nothing but running and agility circuits. Like it's extremely challenging conditioning. All right, and so imagine you're doing like agility circuits and you get halfway through, you get 30 minutes into it and you got one person does not finish through the line. Like you see one person loaf, they'll blow a whistle and start everything over again, okay? Mm -hmm. And you got to go all the way back to the very beginning and you're sitting there doing agility circuits for an hour and a half and it, crush, it absolutely crushes you. Well, under Coach Cutcliffe, we would do that on Monday, Wednesday. No, excuse me, we would do that only on Tuesdays and Thursdays, just twice a week. And that would, be, that would be the only thing we did that day. And we would lift on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Well, when Coach O came in, we did county fair every day. Like, I think we did, I think we did four, we did four days a week and we lifted four days a week. And so we had, we had that every morning, 6 a.m. county fair followed by a lift. I mean, it literally took what was already very, very challenging and pretty much doubled the workload on our team. And, uh, it was, it was pretty miserable, man. Again, I love Coach O. But he absolutely broke us off, man. And 
made guys who had who were who were high contributors to our team question if they even want to play football anymore. Slick, before we move past the the Ole Miss days, any any players of interest that that Hobby played with you wanted to ask him about or anything to add on the Ole Miss time? Yeah, just a, a couple of things, Anthony. I guess I got two questions for you. Um, one, you know, you mentioned um, Eli Manning, and of course, having someone that that that's that's got that much, I guess, superstar quality coming in and, and playing with someone like that. And also you mentioned one of those linebackers that you probably went up against every day in practice being Patrick Willis. Um, yeah. First question is just talk a little bit about what it's like being on a team and, and kind of playing with guys like that, um, really going through their, their journey of starting to get looks at from NFL scouts and things like that. And then the second thing I wanted to ask you to go into is, you know, you had a very good conversation with, uh, with, with Coach Ogeron where he set you down and, you know, you were going into your senior year as a starting fullback, but um, he had a conversation with you about your health and, and really helped yeah. you to see some things. So talk about those two things for us for a minute. Yeah, so um, so here's the thing about playing college with guys like Eli and Patrick Willis is they're, they're yes, they are, are stars at that time, but they still, they, they still have – you don't know how their you don't know if their potential is going to be realized at the next level, right? So you don't know what Eli's you don't know what his his NFL career is going to be like. And so, as a as a college player, he was fantastic, man. He was a he was he was a a professional all the time. Just a great dude. Uh, he had a very he has a very quiet personality, so he's not he wasn't very vocal. Um, but man, he was he was really good. You didn't re, you didn't realize how good he was until he left. Um, and and he was I considered it just a, a privileged man to be able to play. And I only played with him two years, um, so yeah, I liked him. He was he was pretty famous. Like everywhere we went with the team, would get off the bus and there would just be crowds of people looking for him mm-hmm. and wanting his autographs. I mean, kids would be following him around, just yelling his name, Eli, Eli, everywhere we went. Um, and so he was he was pretty uh, he was pretty famous. But Patrick Willis. Now, when he came in, I remember the day he was a year younger than me, and I remember we were we we had a a player ran practice during the summertime, and so it would be like a seven on seven that the players would lead, because the coaches weren't technically allowed to be out there. And I remember Patrick Willis came out there for the first time, and he was probably two hundred and twelve pounds. He was not big at all, but he was ripped up and he was very wiry. Man, he had a nose for the football. He was fast. And I don't think he was, I think he came from a small school, like a small town in Tennessee. And I'm not sure if he was even like a highly recruited player, but man, he, he worked like an absolute animal. Like you couldn't, you couldn't give him enough work to do in the weight room or on the field. And he loved football. So imagine being in the middle of two days, it's August, everybody's miserable. Like you are miserable because it's hot and you're about to go outside and practice some full pack pads. Patrick Willis would be in the locker room excited. He'd be excited, like, guys, let's go, man. Like, we get, we get to play football today. And he would be, he would just be excited. And I realized, I was like, wait a second. When someone talks about how hot it is, it feels hotter for some reason. Hmm. But when Patrick Willis talks about, man, we get to do this as a privilege, it don't seem so bad. And so it, it, it really, I was like, man, your attitude, your attitude toward whatever you're doing can either improve your experience or make it worse, even though the conditions of your experience don't change. And so he was somebody, the man that just loved football and loved to work. And he was just, he was a great human being. And I, I watched him go from this, you know, 215 pound, you know, skinny guy 
who just a 240, 250 pounds, just, you know, stud. And, uh, he was, he was great, man. And so the years that he actually, you know, I was, you know, I was gone when he hit his senior year. So I wasn't there at the end of it, but man, he and I went up against each other pretty much daily in practice, you know, and, and he was a good friend of mine. You know, I, I hadn't, I haven't, I haven't talked to him since then, but during our college years, we were good friends. He was great. Yeah, I definitely want to give you a chance, Anthony, to talk about your Coach O conversation. But, you know, I was telling Clay, when I think about Patrick Willis, and I've got a picture with him somewhere on an old phone, I wish I would have saved. But to me, he was that first linebacker that kind of started changing what the prototypical NFL linebacker looked like with that speed and that, you know, not these yeah. big giant guys. You had to be able to run side on the side. I think he was really the first guy that kind of made that mold for the NFL. Yeah, he was definitely – I mean, he was fast. If you remember watching videos of him, you know, run down running backs from behind, he was – yeah, he was definitely sideline to sideline. He could also stop a run. I mean, he was a, he was a complete player, you know. And, and so to, to go to your second question, Rick, about Coach O, so my junior year, I was going into my junior season during spring training. It was, it was Coach O's first year. Um, I suffered my fifth concussion during, during spring training. And this is when they first started um, taking concussions serious. Before then, you just had to shake it off, give it a few days, and you're back out there, right? Well, they had me take all these tests on computers. And I, and I met with, like, like, probably two or three different doctors. And then after, like, a week, I got pulled into the uh, head trainer's office, and they basically said, hey, um, we're not going to medically clear you to keep playing football again. And it was it was pretty surreal because you got to think, man, Rick, you remember back in high school, like we used to work out together. And I, I mean, the, when I, the years and the amount of time I put in training, OK, leading up to this moment. And again, I walked on. And so you're talking you're talking scout team, just you're going through a tremendous grind, having to earn everything you possibly can and going into the spring spring training. Um, I had an opportunity to win a starting position. Right. And the two fullbacks that were ahead of me had graduated. And so it was me as a junior. And we had a, we had a freshman fullback that was coming in. Um, and so I had this opportunity ahead of me that I, it, it basically was my moment now to take it if, if I could earn it. And um, and they telling me that I can't play anymore. And I remember Coach O called me. I, I was told to go up and meet with Coach O. So I go up to Coach O's office and uh, sit down with him. And he basically just tells me what the medical staff told me. And here's the thing he told me that I always took with me. He said, Anthony, he said, look, if you take, he said, if you take the same like effort and focus and intensity that you took, that you put into football and you put that into something else, like a career, you will be wildly successful. And I'll never forget that. You know, it was like, man, take the same approach you're taking with football. You're a student of the game. You're working hard. You overcome adversity, like all those things, and you apply that to business or whatever it is that you're going to do next, and you'll be successful. And I never, I never forgot wow. that. He may, not, he may not even remember telling me that, but I'll never forget that. That's something. That is, Hobby. And when you look at those words of advice, and and as you've said, like you, it's obvious that you've applied that. Like let's let's go to your career now, and we've kind of touched on on what your title is. We've, we've heard about uh, Clowney and, and being able to work with him. I, I pulled these stats off of, off of y'all's website. 
uh, 40, what well, was it, 38.6% of the 2022 uh, combine invites y'all would have worked with and over with all locations, this is including all of your locations, over a thousand yep. NFL draft picks uh, that your organization would have touched. How, man, so what sets your organization apart, Javi and this? Oh, oh man. Uh, well, I would say what sets us apart right now is that is, is the integration piece of therapy, performance training, nutrition, that's backed by over tw about 20 years of experience. And so we started doing combine training, I think, in 2002, maybe, at our one facility at the time we had in Arizona. And so we've got, we've got 20 years of, of doing this under our belt. And so that, there's a lot of lessons learned in the past 20 years. Um, and so we've, we've done it for 15 years just at the location that I'm at. And so I think the team that we have, the, the type of professionals that we have, the culture of our organization, our training system, the way that we integrate our training system, and then calling on the past experience is probably what sets us apart. Javi, when I'm going through and, and I'm grabbing this off of social media and then also uh, your website, I'm seeing um, OBJ on here. I'm seeing like when you're watching yes. football on Sundays or the Super Bowl, heck, and then OBJ, of yeah. course, tears up the knee. I think that's the, the knee where y'all came into touch with him and, and trying to rehab him. Like, you're watching a lot of guys that, that you know, right? Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, so just at, this, just at our facility in the past 15 years, I, I, we were really close. So i got to check the exact number, but I believe we've, we've prepared right around 460 to 470 players for the NFL draft just at this location in, in Pensacola. Wow. That's not counting our other locations. And so, um, yeah, I mean, if I turn on uh, on Sunday and pretty much any, any NFL football game that, that's on, there's probably four to five guys on each side of the, the team, each side of the ball that I've, I've trained at some point. Um, and so what's really cool is people ask me all the time, like, man, what's your NFL team do you have? And it's like, man, I really don't have one because – I just like I pull for people like there's there's some really good dudes I've worked with that are just great human beings and I want to see them be successful and see them do well regardless of what you know of what team they're on and so I pull for God I pull for I pull for the guys and so yeah it's pretty cool man that you know as time goes by you look at you look back and you're like man um, it's pretty surreal that we we work with that many guys. It's a privilege, man. I like I, I consider it a tremendous privilege because I even tell the guys when they come in. I'm like, look, you guys could go anywhere in this country that you want to, and you chose to come here, and you got me. Some that guys, Javi, that jump out at you that, like, when they show up and you begin to put them uh, through some of y'all stuff, you're like, oh, wow, this is something different here. Some guys that kind of, guys, gals, I know y'all train for a bunch of different things, too, like just some athletes in general that you're like, uh-huh, this is not, not par for the course here. Oh, man. I mean, well, well, here's a couple of them, right? Guys who are tremendous outliers are like one is, is Clowney, Jadavion Clowney. I mean, he, he, his day one when we timed him in a 40, he ran like a low 4'4", four, four, high 4'3", four, at 270 pounds. <laughs> uh, 
Wow. That's, that's un, that is unreal. Okay. Yeah. That is really, that's absolutely unreal. Um, Leonard Ford like a professional one. moment, Hobby. You have to act like you've seen that before. <laughs> like, or, or like, can y'all ooh and ah a bit? You know, I, here's the thing. Like, I try to, I, I try not to say too much, right? Because, you know, it's you start complimenting a guy too much, and you'll see guys kind of, oh, I'm, I'm good to go. Like, I can take my foot off the gas. Sure. And so you got to try to be like, okay, that's good. That's great. But here's three things you could work on to get better. And so you you got to – you always got to continue. You always got to continue to highlight this is what we got to do to get better. This is what we got to do to get better. Because the moment that you decide that you get complacent, it's over. Complacency will kill the process. It'll kill the player, man. Like you cannot get complacent if you're good. So you always got to be focused on things you got to improve upon. Um, but yeah, I mean, shoot, he's one of them. Leonard Fournette was another guy that was just highly talented, very gifted. Todd Gurley was one that was very gifted. Um, um, you know, Odell Beckham trained at our Arizona facility, but his teammate Jarvis Landy, Jarvis Landy trained here with me. And, man, I don't know if to this day I've seen a player catch a football like that guy could. I mean, he was – he had huge hands. And so he would run across that field. We would set up – you know, there's a drill that they do at the combine called the gauntlet. Mm. They run across the field and catch a ball from coming from different directions. Mm. He was catching balls one-handed. He caught one ball one-handed behind his back. Like, it was, a, it was something that was – if it was filmed, you would have thought that it was like – See us, you know, like some computer generated thing. It wasn't real. Uh, but Jarvis Landry was, he was a freak. But, um, our first common class back in 2008 was, uh, Deshaun Jackson. Mm. And I would say to this day, I've never seen somebody as quick in a small space as Deshaun, Jack- Deshaun Jackson was. I mean, he was, he was a special player. Cool stuff. Hobby, any, uh, Ricky Glenn, any, um, athletes you wanted to ask him about in particular yeah i mean i'd like to know i guess two more questions for you one would be you know who's who's standing out to you um that you're training for this year's draft and then i guess another question and i I think you've kind of answered it a little bit but you know just for our listeners to really understand i've had conversations with you where you're you're doing combine athletes one week Venezuela soccer team or rugby team the next week, and then you might be training someone from the military. That change of pace for you, it sounds like from what you said, uh, everything you're doing protocol-wise is the same, but how do you how do you like that that change in just personnel? Is that, do you find that refreshing? Is that kind of energizing for you? Yeah, I, I, yeah so being here, we, we work with a variety of people. You know, we the primary thing that we've done the last 15, really, really the last decade here is work with military special operations. And, you know, we, we love sports, but I would say that that population is the gold standard to work with. Um, I love working with athletes, but working with the military, especially the special operations community, has been has really been the highlight of my career. Um, and so they're completely, completely, completely different. Um, their personality, their culture is very different than athletes. Uh, but they're still human beings, right? And they still need the same, um, they still need the same level of care that pro athletes do. And that's why we started working with that population in the first place. And so it's really cool though, because it gives me a lot of variety in my, in my job because I'm, I'll work with athletes, you know, football players, baseball players, uh, international athletes. We had some, some rugby players from Argentina that's been here for the last few weeks. 
Um, we'll work, I've worked with some Olympic level track athletes. I got to watch the, got to watch the Olympics. I think it was, was it the London Olympics where, um, a, a Latvian and a Russian long jumper that we trained here. We got to watch them in the Olympics that we trained right here in our facility for a while. And that was really cool. So it, it gives you a lot of variety of populations to work with. Uh, and it keeps it, it keeps it different and interesting, but it also is a lot of different challenges. And so, you know, I would shift gears from working with a football player to working with a baseball player to working with a guy in the military who had, you know, was above the knee amputee. And so I might have a guy who is below the knee amputee that I'm working with, and there's a guy with above the knee amputee, and that's two very different things that you're dealing with. And so the challenges that has um, has came our way that we've had to figure out how to work with people with different needs um, has really it's really been it's really been incredible. I mean, the challenges I've been faced with in the last 15 years are, is something I've never I would have never anticipated. Uh, but it's been a great opportunity for growth. Yeah, thanks for that. So, who who should we keep our eye on this year? Who's who's a dark horse uh, in this draft? Maybe no one's talking about a whole lot right now, but you see something special in them. Man, uh, listen, one of our one of our most talented athletes we have right now is a guy named Derek Young. He's a uh, he's actually a D two player. Um, he plays a wide receiver at I think it's uh, Rainier Rye. I think I'm saying that right. It's a it's a place in North Carolina. He is an absolute specimen of a human being, and he won't even get a combine invite. He'll just be performing at his pro day. Um, but another guy is um, is a is an edge rushing guy from Virginia Tech named Amari Barno. Um, he has shown me a different kind of speed. He's like 200 and I think he's 245 and he's showing me speed that I'm looking, I'm thinking that my, my timer's broken. That's how fast he's running. So wow. it'll be really, it'll be really cool to see him. It'd be really cool to see him at the combine, see what he does. Um, I don't want to jinx him by telling you what he might run, but he's, uh, he's going to be, he's going to be special. He's going to be very good. special. The changes in the science and the equipment. I mean, you sent uh, me and Slick a video yesterday on on these guys running on some kind of death contraption of a treadmill. <laughs> like the way that you've seen yeah. that science and and this equipment uh, change in your time there is it's changing daily, right? Yeah. So so what's happened is we're we're learning how to train smarter. You know, like I grew up in the generation of it was all about training harder and. Now we're, we're understanding that that training smarter is actually the way to go. And so there's a, there's a principle that we operate off of that drives everything we do, and it's called work plus rest equals adaptation. Mm. So if you think about it, right, you, you, if you put a stimulus on a human being and then you allow them to recover from it, their body will adapt to that stimulus. And if you don't have the recovery, an adaptation doesn't happen. Just like calluses form on your hand, right? You, you, you rake the yard or you rub sandpaper on your hands. If you let it rest, a callus will form. If you don't let it rest and you just keep raking, you'll get blisters and eventually it won't heal. And so similar thing to the human body is you have to put a stimulus on the body with appropriate recovery built in, adaptation occurs. Well, it's just like a recipe in the kitchen. What kind of adaptation are you seeking? Well, there's a recipe for that adaptation. And so if you're trying to get stronger, there's a recipe for that. If you want to become more powerful, there's a recipe for that. And so 
there's a specific adaptation you're seeking. So therefore, there's a, a specific stimulus that you need to put on them. And so then we're also, we've also made some huge upgrades into our evaluation process um, where we, we take them through a, a series of, um, of testing on force plates. And we can pull a lot of information from athletes jumping on force plates to look at their, their, their strength power profiles. I mean, there's tons of info we get from that that, can un- that gives you a better understanding of, of how these athletes express power. And so some athletes need to get stronger. Some athletes need to do need to get more elastic and do more plyometrics. And so you start really dialing in the training based on the specific needs of the athlete. And so it's really about it's really about better understanding of what athletes really need. Um, I think for the longest time our training was was heavily influenced and was too influenced by the powerlifting community. So everyone thought, man, if I just get stronger, then I can um, then I'll be a better football player. And, and that, that's true to some extent, but not necessarily true. You know, one of the common athletes that played in the uh, Super Bowl was Leonard Floyd. Hmm. Okay. Leonard Floyd, um, I trained him for combine. And listen, he was not strong in the weight room. Like, I was, when I was in high school, I was stronger than Leonard was in the weight room. Okay. Leonard was a first round draft pick and just won a Super Bowl. So, wow. yeah. so there's there's a lot more variables at play to what makes an athlete good on the field, and how much they bench press and squat is just one variable. It is not necessarily the most important variable. And so, so yeah, it's it's a matter of training smarter, not just harder. Understanding um, the intent behind what you're doing, and 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 uh, and putting appropriate stimulus on athletes that they need. Well, look, Javi, I don't think me and Slick can thank you enough. We appreciate uh, the time that we've been able to, to steal. I, I challenged Ricky Glenn. I said, look, if, if we can get Javi on, maybe we can parlay this into a part two where you could help the commoners uh, like myself. I'm not going to throw Slick into this, but maybe we could have you on again and you could give um, some 41-year-old kind of overweight guy some tips. I know that'd be a longer episode, but maybe we could do that. Man, I would love to do that. Guys, look, any opportunity I get to talk to you two, I'm I'm all in. Hobby and the organization is EXOS, and they can go find that. um, I know on Twitter and also on Instagram, and then I think it's Team Echoes on Instagram. on their website. So what was your final comments, Lick? I know you got a hard break here coming. Oh, no, I was going to say, you can definitely throw me into that mix as the, the, the common person <laughs> as well. But no, I, I echo Clay, man. It's it's great talking to you. Uh, love you to death, man. I mean, one of the most genuine, humble guys you'll ever meet. And, you know, you meet his sister and his parents, and it's easy to see the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, man. So we greatly appreciate you giving us some time, bud. Thank you, buddy. Love you guys, man. Appreciate it. All right, guys. Thank you so much. Appreciate you gentlemen. Around here, the tougher things get, the better we are. Because all around Pearl River County, you'll find people working together. Like your two hospitals, Highland Community and Pearl River County, working together with Forest Health to bring you health care that's coordinated and complete. We're here for you now, and you know we'll be here tomorrow. Highland Community Hospital, Pearl River County Hospital, and Forest Health. Two great hospitals, one incredible health system. We're now privileged to be joined by Ian O'Connor, three-time New York Times best-selling author and a columnist for the New York Post. Ian, thanks for taking time for the podcast. 
Clay, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. And the book uh, officially comes out tomorrow. Of course, you can pre-order the Coach K release. How exciting after you've put so much time and work in the day before a book release. What are your nerves like or excitement uh, level like today? Uh, It is pretty exciting. I've been through this now. This is my fifth book. And yeah, it is on Amazon.com now. And it's been selling good for the last uh, couple of weeks. And but the official release is is just a different moment for an author. And uh, so I and it doesn't get old. And it's my fifth time through. My last one was Belichick, Derek Jeter, Arnold Palmer, and Jack Nicholas before that. And so uh, there's a great sense of anticipation. You put two to three years of blood, sweat, and tears into a project. When it finally comes to fruition, it feels pretty damn good. So looking forward to uh, the book coming out tomorrow. Ian, what is it like? You've, you've mentioned some of those guys that you've covered uh, in the past, but I look at Coach K, and especially, I mean, he does his own podcast. He's kind of, uh, no pun intended, but an open book. So what was the challenges that kind of went into digging and finding the nuggets that you have on Coach K? Yeah, he's more of a public figure, certainly, and, and is out there more than Bill Belichick. And it's it, that that's a certain standard I think no coach can match <laughs> in terms of paranoia and secrecy and sure. so forth. So when I... When I tried to, when I did my Belichick book, I felt like I was dealing with the Kremlin. <laughs> but Duke basketball, even though Coach K is out there uh, more than than others, it's still a pretty secretive organization, if you will. It, it's a little bit more like the CIA than the Kremlin, <laughs> and and perhaps the challenges of of finding out information about the Blue Devils program and dynasty over the years wasn't quite what it was as I attempted to do the same thing, and hopefully I pulled it off with the Patriots. But it, it, that's, no, that's no easy process either, and it's not an easy nut to crack. Now, uh, Belichick lobbied people and asked them not to talk to me. And I worked around that, and he created obstacles, and hopefully it made me better as a reporter and researcher. Krzyzewski did not do that. Now, he did not agree to a sit-down with me. I believe he wants to write his own book in retirement, and more power to him. But he did not block anybody. And... He let me know that he would not block anyone, and he actually encouraged some of his longtime friends to speak to me. So I will always appreciate that, and hopefully he will see this book as a fair and thorough and definitive account of a great American life because that's what I always intended it to be. When you're working through the process, Ian, and, and you d- discover or uncover uh, maybe the Bob Knight uh, issue, the Tommy Amaker, uh, the dialogue, uh, the way that you were able to piece uh, the Olympic story together, those are the feeling you get when you, when you have a, a nugget like that or a piece that's going to be so interesting to everybody that gets a chance to read this book, the feeling as the author and then uh, the due diligence to report it uh, correctly and, and to get it all right. Well, Clay, there's a great responsibility when it comes to getting it right, particularly when there are sensitive matters that might be considered controversial or at least negative or edgy, however you want to put it. So there, that is, I feel that burden and that responsibility every day I'm working on a book without question. I think there's also a feeling of fear that somebody will write this, report on it before your book comes out. Hmm. And so when you, these days, particularly now sure. I'm 57, when I started in the business, it was a lot easier to get a scoop for lack of a better term and, and know that you have 24 hours until next morning's newspaper to protect it and hope 
nobody else finds out about it. It was just a lot easier back then with the internet. It's just, and, and social media now, uh, it's very hard to go weeks and months knowing something, knowing you have it locked down, you have rock solid sourcing on it, and just hoping nobody else prints it. And so, <laughs> uh, the, the, the Amer- some of the, the, the night stuff and how that relationship ended at Pinehurst in 2015, the Amaker material on the succession plan and how Shishesky wanted John Shire to get the job and, and worked to make sure that happened against the university's wishes. So those things were, I, I, I held on to for quite a while and just waited and hoped that we can get to publication or at least publicity last week without somebody else revealing it. So, so there's a lot of emotions going on through the process. But the biggest thing, um, the one goal that I always try to, to meet, and the thing that's most important to me is that the subject and, and all those involved think it's fair. Because there are the negatives in Coach K's life and career are in this book. And so it's probably difficult for a public figure to read what is effectively an autopsy on his or her life and appreciate and understand that the negatives have to be in there for it to be an honest account of that life. It's easy for me to say, but if, if somebody, nobody outside of my immediate family cares about my life, but if somebody did and wrote a book about it, I wouldn't like reading about the negatives either. So I'm not asking the person, in this case, Coach K, to like that part of the book, but on some level, I hope he understands that it's a necessary part of any honest account of, of his life, and nobody's perfect. We all have flaws. We've all made mistakes. So those had to be examined in this book. How much, Ian, did the writing of The Jump, uh, your portrayal of Sebastian Telfair and and his journey, how much of that um, research and that writing and help in in college basketball and and how much did that help in writing this book? Well, that, that was my first book. It was almost like my starter house. So we're going back about 17, 18 years when I wrote that book. I did not know how to write a book. I didn't know how to report and research a book. So I was learning on the fly, just like anyone else trying something for the first time. And it was, it was a challenging process because what I was trying to do was capture – back then, high school players could go straight to the NBA. And you had sneaker companies and agents mm-hmm. and college recruiters in there and NBA executives. And, and I, I really wanted to take Sebastian Telfair's senior season journey in Coney Island, Brooklyn, New York, and use that to tell the story of what that crazy process could be like as – a high school senior is trying to make it straight to the NBA and make a better life for his family. And they were living in the projects in in Brooklyn at the time. So I learned a lot with that book and just, it was on the fly and things were happening. It was very fluid. Unlike Arnie and Jack, their careers were basically over. And so that was more an historical document and, and everything, well, not everything, but, but most significant things, particularly in a golf context in their lives had already happened. So it wasn't going to change. Whereas with where you're doing a season and you're on the roller coaster ride with, with a subject like I was with Sebastian Telfair back in 2004, that's a whole different animal. And when you look at this Duke program and, and coach K we've mentioned some of the nuggets from the book. They're, they're out there. One other thing that maybe surprised you the most about uh, Coach K or the Duke program that you uncovered? 
One thing is, in talking to a lot of players, his image, and, and people look at the Duke program as maybe the last shining city on top of a corrupt hill that is the major college sports enterprise. And so that, that image of Duke as a pristine program, at least relatively speaking, I was curious when asking the players that he's had over the years at Duke what, how important that was to him. And to a man, they all said it's not nearly as important as just winning. It's not I thought it might be more of a 50-50 split or, or close to the same level as winning. And, and obviously, I, I do think it matters to them. But really, they were like, no, no, this is – Coach K just wants to win. Now, as a byproduct of running a good program, does he like the fact that people look at Duke a certain way? Yeah. But is it anywhere – it's not on the same level with winning. That is his end game. He wakes up in the morning. As one of his hmm. longtime assistant coaches told me, that he wakes up in a stance and and his his goal every day is is basically to win to win the day and to beat you do during it and if you happen to be an opponent that day that that's his goal is to beat you so that was a little surprising to me as i went through the interviewing process and maybe that's the shift we saw um we talked about Telfair and that time in college basketball and the coach calipari one and done he embraced it coach k didn't embrace it uh, at the very beginning of that, and he kind of shifted into that when he saw, hey, I better get on board. It's going to help me win basketball games. Is that fair? Yeah, it's very fair, Clay, and I think part of that for him was after going through the experience in Beijing in 2008 at the Olympics and coaching some of the greatest players of all time in LeBron James and Kobe Bryant and just coming back from that experience like, hey, I want to coach the best. I really want to coach the best players in the world, having gone through this amazing experience with Team USA. So the only way to coach the best was to embrace the one-and-done era of college basketball. He recruited John Wall. He lost John Wall. They got in, Duke got in late on John Wall, so he goes to Kentucky. But they got Kyrie Irving. They got Austin Rivers, who now, in retrospect, maybe shouldn't have been a one-and-done player, but he was a slam-dunk one-and-done player at the time coming out of high school. Jabari Parker and others. And, of course, they win the national title in 2015 with a one-and-done team. 2010 was, was more of a traditional Duke team that won it. So, yeah, I never thought, Clay, I, I was at the Christian Leitner game in 92 against Kentucky, arguably the greatest shot ever made in college basketball history. I was there in Philadelphia when that unfolded. And those of us there thought Coach K would never have a, a program other than the one he had on the floor with three- and four-year players that night in Philadelphia. So to think that someday he would run a one-and-done NBA factory just like John Calipari does at Kentucky, that is pretty shocking that he did that. But he wanted to win. He wanted to win more national titles, get to the Final Four a bunch of times. And he realized the only way to do that was to adapt and accept one-and-done players, and that's what he did. Ian, with your time and how you can kind of see this playing out over the next three or four years with John Shire taking over, but Coach K still uh, being around the program, how do you think this plays out in the short term as this Duke program moves forward? Well, I think, first of all, they're going to make a run here. I, I think they're good enough to get to the Final Four. Are they good enough to win the whole thing? Who knows? That would be a hell of a way to send out Coach mm -hmm. K with a sixth national title. John Wooden, of course, his last game, he won the national championship, his 10th at UCLA. I think he's going to stay involved in the program. He's going to keep his office on the sixth floor in the tower that overlooks Krzyzewskiville. So he's – and listen, this is a big part of the reason why he wanted Shire to get the job. 
so he can mm. maintain a certain degree of influence over the program. And he still has two daughters working in the department, and he's going to be involved. He doesn't have a lot of hobbies, Clay. He's not, he doesn't play golf. He does a little gardening. He, he used to play tennis, but I don't know physically if he can do that anymore. He doesn't do a lot of reading. So I think he's going to be fairly involved in John Shire's basketball program. I think it's going to be very interesting to watch that dynamic. As a new head coach, do you really want the legend being around as much as he'll be around? And just like if you were running a company and then you became – or if you were second in command, then you became the CEO of a company, would you want the previous CEO to still be on the board or to still be a consultant slash advisor? Probably not. So I think I think that will be interesting to watch. Shire basically owes the job and his career to Krzyzewski – how much will he involve him in the day-to-day operation of the Duke program? That, that'll that be interesting to watch. Yeah, it doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun to me, Ian, does it to you? Well, no, but on the other hand, without uh, Coach K's support, John Shire doesn't get that job. Tommy Amaker gets it. So so at least in the early years, I think he will he will defer as, as much as he can while still maintaining control of his own basketball team. But I think when Coach K wants to walk into practice, he'll be he'll be allowed to do that. And I think he'll listen to him. He'll involve him. And there's a fine line there. Like how much is too much? And a lot of this is incumbent on Coach K to let John breathe and let him coach the team. And I'm sure he plans on doing that. So I'm just saying it just – after a couple of years of that, let's see how it plays out. It'll be a fascinating dynamic to observe from afar. Absolutely. Ian, I can't thank you enough for coming on the program. I can't wait to devour this book as well. So thank you. Thanks very much, Clay. Take care.